Hey friends, my university is on spring break, and so this week I am sharing with you a uh, little conversation I had with undergraduate students who were uh, really fantastic. This is a tri-campus undergraduate conference where uh, Concordia University, Irvine, that's my institution, along with Fresno Pacific University and Pepperdine all had students and a few faculty out to talk about the liberal arts, great books, all sorts of great ideas, and uh, they uh, invited me to do the keynote address uh, to kick off the event, and this is what I'm bringing to you because it is all about the sorts of things we talk about on Protect Your Noggin. Let's go. February 27th, Saturday, 2021, our tri-campus virtual undergraduate conference of liberal arts scholarship, hosted by Concordia University and uh, featuring our undergraduate scholars from Concordia, as well as Fresno Pacific University and Pepperdine University. Uh, my colleagues from Pepperdine and from Fresno Pacific are here and our undergraduates from all three institutions as well. A hearty welcome to you. I'd like to say good morning and welcome to Questions That Endure, a liberal arts conference of undergraduate scholarship shared by three universities who share some important things in common, a church relatedness that trusts in an identity shaped by God in Jesus Christ, a devotion to great books, great texts, the great tradition, and the great conversation of the liberal arts and its inquiry into the good, the true, and the beautiful, and a commitment to sharing and teaching and challenging the next generation to continue thinking and reading, connecting and writing, and preparing to serve God and neighbor in light of these enduring questions and ideas. My name is CJ Armstrong. I'm a professor at Concordia University. I teach in our Christ College with theology and, and church work and classical languages, Greek and Latin. Those are the things that I do most, as well as in the Department of History, where I teach ancient history, mythology, our core history one class that deals with the Western heritage. Uh, I also direct our honors program at Concordia University. Healing is the theme of the note that my colleague intends to strike now as we move into a keynote address, a keynote which I am eager to hear in harmony with the papers that have been collected here today. So please let me introduce my friend and colleague, Jeff Mallinson. Dr. Jeff Mallinson, who received his Doctor of Philosophy from Oxford, is a professor and chair of the History and Political Thought Department at Concordia University, Irvine. He's also a speaker, a podcaster, and writer. He specializes in the history of ideas, especially as they shed light on the ways in which religious and philosophical ideas can both emancipate and enslave people. 
In addition to several scholarly book chapters and articles, collaboration that I've had the benefit of as well, he's author of a book called Sexy, The Quest for Erotic Virtue in Perplexing Times, published by New Reformation Press in 2017. Faith, Reason, and Revelation in Theodore Beza, 1519 to 1605, published by Oxford in 2003. He's also an associate editor of the Encyclopedia of Luther and Rethinking the Methods of Religious Education is his focus these days. Outfoxing Religious Wolves, which is the mission and message of his podcast and the curriculum called Protect Your Noggin. He's married to Stacy and has adult sons, Augie, Augustin, and Aiden. He's the faculty in residence also for Concordia's Honors Living and Learning Community. As many of you who are here on screen know, he's a regular presence on campus because you're his actual three-dimensional neighbor on campus as well. For fun, he enjoys writing poetry, long-term boondocking in a truck bed camper, and developing a small off-grid farm in rural San Diego County. And today, he's going to offer us his wisdom under the title, The Liberal Arts as Medicine for Our Ailing Times. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jeff Mallinson. Thank you, CJ, and welcome to all of you. Good morning. I'm glad there's some optimism, but I want to start by saying we live in precarious times. Of course, there have been many precarious times. Maybe just being an embodied thing, a sentient being in time is a very precarious proposition altogether. But ours involves something that I believe is particularly connected to a lack of confidence in the liberal arts. We've seen a lot of this in the, in the media. There's been the sentiment that, uh, that this is a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of effort. But yet, I believe that a lot of what is ailing our times can be remedied by a revival of interest and the thriving of the liberal arts. Our problem is not just societal divisiveness or political wrangling. It's not just that we've seen the world differently from other people and this becomes disruptive. I think our problem is a basic and brazen disregard of reality. And we do this without embarrassment. Go to Machiavelli. People have said there's a time to lie. But the, the, uh, the cynicism of people playing this game on all sides is what is particularly um, distressing to me. I grew up as a young man in evangelical academia, that was my world. And the one thing, the big boogeyman uh, was, uh, was post-modernity and the dissolution of truth, the, the, the disintegration of truth in our society. That's no longer what I see. I see on all sides, uh, whatever we used to be worried about as relativism, this is something that fundamentalists do. This is no longer something where we, we're bringing our public voice to the greater conversation, rather we're starting to be content with our own little echo chambers. And of course, given our particular moment, you might be thinking about Donald Trump's mantra of fake news as an answer to every inconvenient fact, or in the American evangelical circles, maybe a deep distrust of science. 
We see it with climate deniers. We see it with the anti-vaccination movement. And we can laugh at it when it manifests itself as flat earth zealotry. But it's no laughing matter. And I wonder how many of you are aware of the story of Tara Reid, who briefly worked as a staff assistant in Joe Biden's Senate office. She told the New York Times that in 1993, Mr. Biden pinned her to a wall in a Senate building and assaulted her sexually. According to the New York Times, Reid told a friend about the incident right after the affair, after the matter happened, and then had spoken about this traumatic event throughout her ensuing years. It's the willful disregard of this story that worries me more than the rest, precisely because many of those who found it inconvenient, this allegation, for political reasons, were vocal, and I would contend rightly so, about allegations of similar abuse uh, against Brett Kavanaugh and Donald Trump. And they took those seriously, but they simply ignored, or what's worse, often would attack the uh, alleged victim in the exact same way that they criticized people who were doing this elsewhere. You can read this, go back and, and see this on Twitter. You can see this on YouTube videos. The comments are pretty dreadful. And of course, that's what we expect from that kind of discourse. But again, they sound exactly like the ad hominem attacks from some conservatives against, <clears throat> excuse me, Christine Blasey Ford. How do we, why does this concern me more, this case of the Biden situation? It's because it demonstrates that, um, progressive woke people too will uh, will circle the wagons when it suits them and if that's going to happen and and i'm saying this more as a more on the left politically myself so i see this within the people that i thought would have would have opposed that kind of behavior things that if you did this at a college campus would rightly get you censured hopefully fired for the way we would we would not want this to be the way we treat uh, these allegations but what this is, is, is actually not, not uncommon at all. Um, we could think about system justification theory in social psychology. Uh, Yost and van der Turn describe it this way, quote, according to system justification theory, people are motivated to varying degrees, depending upon situational and dispositional factors, to defend, bolster, and justify prevailing social, economic, and political arrangements. System justification motivation is theorized to manifest itself in a number of different ways in their study uh, to occur implicitly, that is non-consciously, as well as explicitly, and to serve underlying epistemic, existential, and relational needs. To recap, in many ways, you'd say what happens here is we are so committed to the ideology, the system, the structure, the sports club, the Lakers, my church, whatever that thing is that is our life is so important to us that when we see this fact or this problem that presents itself, um, we, we see that this is a threat to the system itself. And so we don't necessarily intentionally do this, but we, we do do it. We will suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans 1. So I'm not mentioning all this political stuff to piss you off or to promote my own political agenda, but rather to declare woe, woe, and a thousand times woe on our generation. This is not God thumping us or me thumping on people. It's to say, whoa, whoa, like with your, with your horse. <laughs> whoa, like, woe is us that we got into this situation. It reminds me of the words of Psalm 58 from the Book of Common Prayer. And 
I was 50-50 on whether I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this for you now. I'm going to, I'm going to chant it for you just a little bit. Um, oh, <laughs> now I'm too embarrassed. Are your minds set upon righteousness, O ye congregation? And do ye judge the thing that is right, O ye sons of men? Yea, ye imagine mischief in your heart upon the earth, and your hands deal with wickedness. The ungodly are froward, even from their mother's womb. As soon as they are born, they go astray and speak lies. They are as venomous as the poison of a serpent, even like a deaf adder that stoppeth her ears, which refuseth to hear the voice of the charmer. Charm he never so wisely. Charm he never so wisely. Like the deaf adder, we stoppeth our ears. So what do we do about it? That's the ailment. What's the medicine? The liberal arts. The, the liberal arts is another way of lab labeling what Hogwarts calls the defense against the dark arts. And just like at Hogwarts, it's often a position on the faculty filled with frauds and wicked professors that are working for the bad guys. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's safe for an individual or society to dispense with the defense against the dark arts. Voldemort, Mammon, Molech, Caesar, Emperor Palpatine, they all seek to intervene in pedagogy if they're not going in to slash the little Padawans. Why? Because that's where any cause is most effectively championed, education, or where any cause is most effectively shut down. And what is the nature of the intervention of the bad guys? They don't want you to pay attention to reality. This is why in 1849, a Virginia law stated, quote, every assemblage of Negroes for the purpose of instruction in reading or writing or in the nighttime for any purpose shall be an unlawful assembly. Any justice may issue his warrant to any office or other person requiring him to enter any place where such an assemblage may be and seize any Negro therein and he or any other justice may order such a Negro to be punished with stripes. Why would you do that? Because at its most basic, what the Virginia government prohibited was precisely the point of the liberal arts. The arts make us free. But sometimes it is we ourselves who subconsciously are too afraid to be free. Sometimes we avoid the truth because of fear. As when we cover our heads as children with a blanket, when we worry that there is some entity under our bed, even though ghouls can probably pass through 200 count uh, linens. We cover our eyes, we block our ears. And sometimes our disregard of reality is a legitimate natural response to trauma. You know, um, a kid, a kid's in a car accident, forgets that it happens. That's a mercy. Sometimes our bodies don't let us notice some things because we aren't in a position to process them. And so it's merciful just as, uh, as we would, we would want sometimes to forget these things, but sometimes we must face these traumas. And we can do this in the context of a, of a healthy community, the, the college, the university, the guild of learners who are going to face that reality, supporting each other, checking each other's assumptions so that we can get at the, uh, at the, the thing that ails us, that we can diagnose our, our illness. But you ask yourself, how do you cope 
with painful reality? Do you look away? For me, sometimes I can turn to what the Romans had, uh, bread and circuses. I can, I can be so stressed that I just, just, I love to watch baseball because it's boring and I'm not thinking about pain. Sometimes it's inebriation to just numb that, that anxiety with alcohol. But the liberal arts are about paying attention, being aware, being awake. The humanities, therefore, are about being human and seeing the human. And only in this way, the cultivation of empathy, can we recover truth, which is what I think uh, is best described as understanding rather than exclusively a cognitive, uh, cognitive propositional assertion about the world. My colleague in anthropology here at Concordia, Jack Schultz, asked a group of us on campus recently to write down in a paragraph what we thought was the ideal outcome for, for a student that would come through our programs. And this is what I sent to him this week. I want to produce graduates that are happy and free. By happiness, I refer to the classical Greek concept of fulfilling one's life callings with excellence in meaningful relationships with others. By free, I mean Jesus' way of mental emancipation, which sets us free from the tyranny of our parental authorities, mammon-ruled religious and commercial institutions, and authoritarian statism. It's the same sort of freedom sought by Abraham when he left a city ruled by a god king for the way of harmony with the natural world in a pastoral life. It's a freedom that allows each student to discover their true selves. The mechanism for this is, of course, education regarding the knowledge and methods of each discipline. The end result is not one that leaves the individual liberated and alone, however. Rather, it results in an awakened individual who possesses the virtues of humility and courage and is committed to helping all sentient beings find happiness and freedom in what Jesus called the kingdom of God. This need not necessarily result in dogmatic allegiance to Christianity as a world religion, though we welcome that as Christian faculty, but to the way of Jesus as a form of existence in this world that presents the cross as a challenge to a lot of our ideologies or all our ideologies. So that was what I sent him. What I mean is the liberal arts are under attack today because we don't think that it's going to do us any practical good. And this is a very practical medicine. It seems that the liberal arts were invented precisely for a time like this. Indeed, our grim anti-truth situation culturally can really only be addressed by recovering the intellectual virtues that, that come along with the liberal arts. The bad press, of course, is that the liberal arts are too elitist. Um, that it's not really about making people free, but the fun stuff that free people who are affluent get to do while everybody else, the poor, miserable, massive humanity works their hours away to keep the building running or to service food in the cafeteria or, or just slave away for the rest of the things we need in life. They think it's too impractical or it's too expensive. <laughs> Whereas an old uh, Republican senator who was my, my president when I was at Colorado Christian University once said, uh, the problem with the liberal arts is it makes everybody a Democrat. <laughs> um, but I, I see that in my own life, I almost, I think I must confess, I almost gave up on the project of the liberal arts as a thing in society myself. I was pretty much content to live in my truck camper uh, at the end of last year. I was pretty much going to just 
retire at 47 and just travel the earth with my wife and my dog um, in my in my truck camper that I call St. George. But uh, but then the crazy started to happen. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I realized I needed to double down on my commitment to the liberal arts project personally. And that's why I moved on to campus to to double down. Indeed. I realized that if we first separate out how to pay for the liberal arts, that's a question. And what the literary canon might be, that's another question that sometimes gets tangled up in this. And perhaps the historical racism uh, related to private Christian education, all these things might cause us to wonder whether we're doing the right thing. But again, we still need to have a defense against the dark arts. And so just because we've done it in ways that might be unjust doesn't mean that the justice isn't there. Just like you don't say, let's not learn things because these people, these black people in Virginia were unable to learn. No, the answer is to disseminate and to spread the kingdom through knowledge, through learning, through discipleship. So so that my colleagues don't start to think I'm getting too new agey here, I can do that. Let me, let me appeal to a more trusted source, the Stoic sage Seneca and his De Brevitate Vitae on the shortness of life. Quote, life is short. Oh, I'm sorry. The reason I want to bring this up is because when I was growing up, everybody always said, you know, life is short. You're, you're going to be surprised how fast it goes by. And that's what the oldster said. And it was true for me until about 40, because if you're just inebriating yourself through work and actual, you know, alcohol or whatever it is um, to get through the drudgery of life, then it starts to go fast. You go, where to go? But at some point, I learned how to pay attention. And I feel like I've lived like a thousand lives between my, my 40th birthday and now. And I invite you to consider that, that there is a way in which the liberal arts are going to, to triple your life expectancy, even though the date of your death may be the same. You're going to pack it. This is where I get this from, uh, Seneca. Quote, it is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements, if it were all well invested. But when it is wasted in heedless luxury and spent on no good activity, we are forced at last by death's final constraint to realize that it has passed away before we knew it was passing. So it is. We are not given a short life, but we make it short. And we are not ill-supplied, but wasteful of it. Life is long if you know how to live it. Of all men, they alone are at leisure who take time for philosophy. Now let's remember, philosophy is the whole shebang here, not just the class you might not have liked, you know, and maybe you loved it, but it's not just that, it's everything. Those who study this are alone really alive, for they are not content to be good guardians of their own lifetime only. They annex every age to their own. All the years that have gone before them, are in addition to their storehouse. That's what we got. Some think the liberal arts uh, involves a list of things to learn and imbibe to be a part of free society. It's that. There's cultural literacy. Um, but the liberal arts, again, is about awareness. It's about clarity. It's about freedom from manipulation and deception. Manipulation from others and deception from others, but deception that we impose upon ourselves. This is why we read people from other cultures that speak different languages from a long time ago. As C.S. Lewis said in his preface to uh, Athanasius on the Incarnation, 
it's not that they had it all right, but their errors were different from our errors. So we can, we can use this as a mutual critique. The liberal arts, therefore, if I may, are kind of on the similar track to what Soto Zen practitioners of Zazen, the seated meditation, it's not really meditation, it's just Zazen, are really after. What Zazen is really supposed to be is not where you sit until you come to some like uh, awareness of some deity that shows up or you have this kind of trippy experience of um, some, some visions or something. The whole point of it is by sitting and being aware, that's enlightenment. There's nothing else to do. You just got to learn to train your brain to do it. The liberal arts are like this. If you also consider Martin Luther, as he translated the Greek metanoiate, previously rendered as do penance, and changes it to something more like, come to your senses, wake up, find enlightenment. Now, that word, we kind of like laugh at it. That's why I said, like, am, I, am I being too new agey? Um, well, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? What's so funny about enlightenment? Just because these things can become cliche because we've, we've cheapened them. If we think of enlightenment as waking up to reality and seeking awareness and understanding, this is what we do. This is what we ought to be doing. And what, what does this bring us? Brings us two things. Critical thinking. There's a lot of things, but critical thinking and imagination. Critical thinking and imagination. Start with critical thinking. We don't want to get duped. That's good. That's why my wife and I spend a lot of our, our extra hours um, with this podcast kind of teasing out how this liberal arts conversation can help people get out of cults, bad relationships, ideologies that are destructive. Uh, we want this, of course. The way that I, I see this particularly fitted to my own tradition, the Lutheran tradition, is a trajectory that isn't so much like the Thomist tradition of the Roman Catholics, but of the, uh, the tradition of, of William of Ockham. And there's been, uh, I think, a lot of good recent rediscovery of Ockham, translation of Ockham. People are starting to, to get on board with him. You know, he had gotten himself into some trouble with the Catholic Church. And so, you know, you, you weren't going to hear as much from some of the, the old intellectual historians really, really understanding what he was about in the, in the fullness. But here's my summary of what he says. This isn't from anything in particular. This is, the, I think, the epitome of his thought. Um, it's an encouragement for the knower, the learner, you, to think what you think you should think and feel what you feel you feel. Trust your perceptions. Avoid unnecessary hypotheses and always let your conscience be your guide. Now, every time I say that, it's spent, I have to spend a lot of time kind of unpacking it and I don't have time to unpack it. But I believe that this is, this is part of it, that there is a way in which part of our problem is, is a Christian liberal arts problem, a church-related liberal arts problem, which is, uh, and, and specifically, you know, the different, different church-related schools will, will, will take this in, in different directions. But I think that one of the things that's making me nervous about abusive behaviors in churches going unchecked is that we have taught ourselves to ignore the things that are uncomfortable for the institution, and um, we've taught ourselves to ignore our perceptions. This does not mean we're not sinful in the Christian perspective uh, or that we're not uh, just limited in any you know, good epistemological sense, but it's this idea that with, with say, Sextus Empiricus, uh, there are there are these judgments about the perceptions, yes, and some and our our judgments are often off, and so we suspend judgment. 
but we also recognize the perceptions. We do not su- su- suppress them, uh, or or we shouldn't suppress them. Is what I think Occam was really about. And so uh, this is the first the first thing that 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 can happen. And in doing this, we we learn this all the time. But we also must do it together so that we can learn the virtue and the habit of courage once we know how to think critically. Because the the virtue of courage is, I think, what was most lacking in the last few, is, has been most lacking in the last few years from people who I think ought to know better, um, people who, who understand um, sexual abuse and trauma, and people who understand uh, political um, thought and constitutionality and all these things, and will abandon them for the sake of the system, even though they have the skills. They know what an informal fallacy is, but they'll use it. I mean, what's the good of that? In other words, what's the good of just learning the technique if we do not learn together to be an ethical learning community that is actually seeking goodness, truth, and beauty? The second piece that I think is really important for what we do, the liberal arts, isn't just the critical thinking part, but is also imagination. The liberal arts allows us this fun, especially if you can do it for four years, the seemingly frivolous game of imagining a world that isn't right? This allows us not to settle for what is as if there are no alternatives or as if our miserable state is inevitable or unchangeable. And here I have to draw on the idea of Christian hope. We don't just observe, we observe with the eye to heal. And imagination then in our, in our times isn't just about the reconstruction or rebuilding of a broken system, but sometimes it's reimagining the whole thing if need be radically. The liberal arts, therefore, lets us imagine a better way. This can involve fiction, historical study, where we look at different configurations of the polis or artistic visions of a, of a different tomorrow or psychological inquiries into how we can address the cognitive biases or sins, if you will, that keep us shackled to sick systems. This, of course, is liberating to the student but it is admittedly something that we must recognize is dangerous to parents and the society that sends students to the university, right? Totalitarian regimes always know this, right? It's always the college kids are going to be marching in the streets when they get a little bit out of hand. And here is where I think Jesus helps, right? Get the, get this, the Soto Zen, you get the Seneca. I want to bring in Jesus here. Jesus, I think one of the most important things that he says, not something to shy away from, is this strange language of hating your parents, I think it's a key component of what Jesus flow was. I think it's the best way to uh, combat racism within uh, Christianity. You want a Bible verse for it? You can go to the good Samaritan. That seems kind of preachy. Hate your parents. Isn't about being mean to your parents or not respecting them, not loving them, not being kind to them. It's about not being bound to your genetics as the only thing that defines you. It's about not being defined primarily by your tribe or your nationality, or your, or your culture, although your culture, of course, is going to be a part of your identity. It's the ability to say, we might be doing some of this wrong. And what happens when people say that, whether it's Socrates or Jesus, they get killed. They get killed. That brings us back to courage. Now, we don't usually, you know, we don't usually think about this as the most, one of the most important things that Jesus said, because I think that the overzealous bouncers that are the the institutional churches 
are in a way barring the way to the teaching of Jesus. We're kind of getting in our own way. People of all backgrounds are willing to look at Lao Tzu. They're willing to look at Socrates. But for some reason, Jesus is a little uncomfortable because you got to get to him, it feels like, through these other interpretations. And those other interpretations are the parents. And so it's no surprise that we don't have a lot of Bible studies or highlights of that passage. Hate your parents. But, but what was he doing? I didn't really understand what, what this was really about until I met a student at Concordia named Nakukanya Shabalala, the most wonderful name. I enjoy saying it all the time. And she, uh, she was from South Africa. Her father was a practitioner of Yoruba, a, uh, you know, a indigenous African religion, had multiple wives, and she got the opportunity to study at a Lutheran high school. And it was at this Lutheran high school that she was baptized and converted to Christianity. And this was a great offense to her father. It wasn't just that the father cared what she believed, but she was acting on her own. And what did the dad say? Why, Knox, do you hate me? That's what Jesus meant. Jesus wasn't saying be disrespectful. Jesus was saying there is a call to truth. And your job as the learner is to follow, follow that call, even when the people that you think you're supposed to be pleasing in this process are going to be disappointed. And in fact, you need to hate your professors. You need to hate me if you're in my class for my good in that sense. There was a student the other day, I was saying, well, you know, I really, I, I still want to stand by this idea of absolute um, freedom of, of speech and, and, and no censorship. And really, if we just leave these things out on the internet, um, these, will, uh, these will work themselves out. People will see how silly they are and, and they'll work themselves out. And the student said, if, if I may disagree, uh, dear professor, that's just patently false based on the data I have read. And um, why did you hate me, kid? He didn't hate me. He was my best friend in that intellectual sense, right? Now, I might disagree with him. I might push back, but I need that. That's what we do. Knox had the whole village out. They sacrificed a goat to call upon the spirits of the ancestors to curse her, to take away their blessing. Ultimately, however, she came to America. She came to Concordia University, Irvine, and did really well, went on to grad school, sent money back home. And the, the family is, is now won over by her, her goodness and her love and her uh, respectability, right? She's won them over, but she stuck to her guns. That's what I think is going on in the liberal arts. It's not just tearing things down, but sometimes it is reimagining when things need to be reimagined. When my wife and I are driving around in our truck camper, we are uh, always going over uh, a, a little side project we're doing, which is to translate the uh, 81 chapters, very short chapters of the uh, Tao Te Ching, which is a totally absurd thing for me to do because Dr. Armstrong uh, a while back brought out um, a translator and classicist of, of this, uh, Stanley uh, Lombardo, but he, um, uh, he just turn, turned me on to the text itself. And, uh, and so in going back over it, it's kind of like if you learn Greek, uh, you know, like I, I don't know Attic Greek, but I can, you know, I know the Greek words in the Bible. So that makes me a yeah, subpar you know, Greek scholar, but it's um, so that's the kind of Chinese scholar I am and I have no ability to pronounce things. But the, uh, but the practice of it has been really helpful. And one of the things I've noticed is that in the Tao Te Ching, it kind of was presenting me with a solution to the number one question of my research. My academic research is that really the history of it, like epistemology and religion and how they go together. 
And um, what I think Lao Tzu says, and it's probably written by multiple sages, but we'll call it Lao Tzu. Um, what I think he's saying in the Tao Te Ching is basically the problem isn't finding the truth. The problem is having the courage to face the truth. Much of the time, we know darn well what's going on, but we then use our logic to do everything we can to avoid confronting that reality. Here's one chapter, chapter 20 from uh, Stacy and my version. Stop overthinking. Let your worries go. It doesn't matter if popular opinion goes this way or that way. In the end, there's really no difference between success and failure since we receive lessons from both. So tell me, should I fear what others fear? Don't be silly. The crowd is getting rowdy and they're heading for a party. They want to get drunk and get laid. But I lounge around as if I didn't get the invitation. I'm like a newborn who hasn't even learned to smile yet. I must seem like a foundling who's now drifting about like a vagabond. Most men try to hoard their excess, but I leave everything behind. They think I must be an idiot. Dumbass, they sneer. The crowd is glamorous, but I seem common. Everyone else is a player. They think I don't have game, but I'm just floating on ocean swells, surfing the Tao, whichever way it flows. Others chase success. I must seem strange. I simply receive the blessings that are already here, like a suckling infant. All right. Where do I bring this in? Or where do I come off bringing this in? Because in a way, that struck me as more helpful than what could have been helpful, maybe at a different time and place, from Immanuel Kant, when he said, sapere aude, dare to know. And I think it also has something to say, uh, to commend even, uh, you know, the postmodern Immanuel Levinas, who are, you know, suggested that ethics is the first philosophy. Ethics being the first philosophy is the idea that we have to have the intellectual virtues if we're going to be serious about actually attending to the data that's before us. And so in our context, we need the twin virtues of humility and courage. Humility lets us recognize our cognitive biases and ignorance. Courage helps us affirm and amplify what we know is true. These are sorely needed in both the church-related and state-sponsored academies. And so to conclude, let me uh, show how you can walk through this, uh, through the processes and through the phases of what uh, James Minoya uh, said is, is kind of the, the ideal for undergraduate students, especially at a Christian or church-related university. Uh, his book is a little bit older now. It's from 2000, uh, Christian Liberal Arts and Education That Goes Beyond. But what I really like from that book is the way he lays out these three phases. The first, naive dualism. The second, cynical relativism. And the third is critical commitment. You come to the university, you think you got it already figured out. You, you know everything that's going on. I'm on the good team and everybody else on the bad team. But then you get your world kind of rattled. You get this cognitive dissonance as you meet people. You know, maybe you're a Baptist and now you got a friend who's a Pentecostal. And then, uh, and then and if you're at Concordia, you, you know, you, you meet um, LGBT people who are more chaste than your church group friends that are heterosexual. You meet um, uh, Muslims that are really pa like passive and you meet Christians that want to go blow things up. And you go, okay, what's my world now? 
what's my world now? I can't fit this in anymore. So what you move to naturally, maybe your sophomore year, maybe your junior year is a cynical relativism where you say, okay, okay. I just want to get along with everybody and I want to be nice. I want to be hospitable. So what, what am I going to say? Everybody's right, right? Like everybody's right. And I'm not going to really assert courageously any kind of truth. And that's not the answer either. By the time you get out and maybe five years after, if it takes that long, he hopes that the Christian liberal arts can bring us to a place of critical commitment. Critical commitment is where you recognize that you might be wrong. You hold your uh, assessment of the, of the truth loosely, but tenderly and with thoughtfulness and with commitment, right? Um, it allows you to have a prophetic voice without just becoming somebody who's parroting whatever your ideological circles want you to parrot. According to Manoia, this stage leads students, quote, beyond dogmatism in applying the best critical tools available to the real questions of life. They go beyond cynical skepticism in their willingness to be committed in spite of doubt. They recognize the limitations of human understanding and yet are prepared to take a stand and even stake their lives. If that isn't medicine for our Erling times, I don't know what it is. Thank you. The first question that I'd, I'd like to uh, offer to you, Dr. Mallinson, is what's the balance between respecting authority as scripture calls us to, and, and you mentioned uh, Luther, Luther calls us to that, What's the balance between respecting authority, as scripture calls us to, and contesting authority for the preservation of truth? As an undergrad student, uh, this student says, I think it's pretty cocky of me to have a posture of assuming that I can understand things as clearly as my professor with a PhD. Part of the treasure of the liberal arts seems to me to be submission to older voices, to educational authority. How do we submit and hate at the same time? Thank you. That's a great question. I'll try not to go too long on it. Uh, first, this is a thing that comes up in, you know, in Christian ethics, um, especially as it relates to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, trying to answer these kind of questions. Um, in, in light of Romans 13, teachings in, in the Apostle Paul, for instance, where, where this is, you know, it's really important, you know. Um, to be law-abiding and respectful. I read these in almost an anarchist way, by which I mean, precisely because I do not deify the state, I can tolerate a penultimate political reality um, without freaking out, right? Like, if my guy or someday gal gets in, that's great. If they don't, that's, uh, that's a bummer. But we respect those authorities for the sake of, of, a, of a healthy and uh, a relatively less violent society. But the reason we respect it is because we hold these things as penultimate so that my ultimate um, commitment is to, I as a Christian would say, is the kingdom of God. When I know this, I actually, it de-escalates the, um, it de-escalates the, the, uh, the, the fury of those political things, right? So if I'm a Marxist, that is my re religion. Whereas I, I and, 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 and sometimes Christians, for instance, on, on a more conservative side can almost conflate 
their kind of political agenda with their religion, and therefore um, they they become really intense about it, and therefore defiant of authorities. So we see people smashing windows um, in Portland, and we see people smashing windows in in uh, on January sixth. That's what it looks like not to obey authorities. Um, now there are times, of course, when, when maybe you would you would have some kind of uprising, but the but the point but the point remains. Um, making making these things uh, it almost elevates them too much to to give them uh, too much authority and so much authority that you have to oppose them okay so like i can i think we can just relax a little bit right it's like your guy's not in office that's cool relax a little bit um as far as parents and uh, and teachers um the, the the one thing that a phd doesn't do for me is help me to tell me tell to let me know what you're feeling and what you're perceiving right if you're angry have you been taught that you're not supposed to look pretty? Smile. Don't be angry. Don't be down. Right. I'm the professor. I'm, I'm in control of your sentiment. I, I have no I have no access to that. That's your access. And that's what's valuable to me as a professor. Now, as a professor, I could point you to my colleague, John Liu, who is in psychology, and he will help you to understand maybe why you're thinking in these ways. And maybe they're not as productive as you think. And so what do I have for you? I've got wisdom. Your authorities in life aren't. Uh, your 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 sages in life, your professors, they offer you wisdom and advice and counsel and learning, but they do not own you, and they do not uh, you do not need their permission to think what you think. That's all I'm saying. That you you must operate that way, or else you're wasting your time in college. If you if you want the alternative of this, and I know a lot of especially conservative parents get frustrated with me when I, when I say this, I'm just telling you the practical result is if you don't do this. Um, or if if a parent doesn't allow that freedom to think, what happens is, you know, maybe right after high school, say, you might have gone to a very, you know, uh, very clear college that this is how you're supposed to think, or high school, this is how you're supposed to think. And then you go to, say, a state school, and now your new daddy is this atheistic professor, and now you're going to think like that person, or your your new person is whoever whoever's in charge. Well, if you're just letting, you know, if you're letting that be the case, which professor are you going to listen to? Don't listen to me because I'm saying it. I'm just giving you this as advice. But you might have to hate that advice. That's the irony of it, right? Like, if I'm wrong, then your apparatus, the thing that's making you question that student, the student to the student who's asking it, kudos. That's the point. If you thought that you couldn't do that or that that was a problem to even challenge that, that that'd be a problem. But, but which professor are you going to listen to? Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Jeff. Uh, and welcome to the table. Lauren, uh, uh, go ahead. Hi, um, thank you so much, Dr. Mallison. I found everything you said to be really insightful. Um, so you mentioned earlier how many people can perceive the liberal arts education as elitist or maybe pretentious. And I think we can all acknowledge that attending a liberal arts college and receiving a traditional collegiate experience does require a certain amount of privilege, um, especially financially. So how can we promote and provide opportunities for people that you know, don't have access to a traditional liberal, liberal arts education and still encourage people to seek truth and be aware and avoid deception, even though they don't have access to like traditional academia settings? Thank you so much, Lauren. The first, the first thing is, I, I don't uh, think that we should settle for not allowing that uh, idea of the liberal arts to be spread more broadly, right? That's, that's how you have a republic that's 
not going to self-destruct. So um, this is why, you know, I mean, this is why when I say uh, in my own political uh, thought on this, um, I think it is, it is not a super socialist idea to have a little bit better funding for you that you're that the only way to get to this happiness and freedom is for you to be enslaved by debt. I find this to be morally problematic. And I, you know, I, I grew up, you know, hardcore, uh, you know, libertarian where I, uh, I thought, you know, no, any, any public funding for this is a disaster. Um, I think we're living in a period of time where we're seeing that the lack of liberal arts education is, is not working out for us so well. And so expanding that, not everybody needs to go to college. There's no doubt about that. That's the, but the first thing is, I think I want to be able to give more access to these sorts of things, that we shouldn't resent it, and that we shouldn't be, when we think about, for instance, um, access to first-generation students, uh, to students from uh, backgrounds that have historically been underprivileged and poor on the margins, and maybe it's, say, uh, going to affect standardized tests and all these things. There is a, there is a sentiment on, on more of the conservative side of the academic world, especially uh, in the kind of the public conversation that says, no, 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 everybody just, you know, everybody needs to be uh, purely on an equal footing. And there should be no, there should be no uh, bold attempt to increase diversity. This is, this is, un, this is both an injustice, but it's also wrongheaded for ourselves. I mean, the, the reverse could be true. You could say, well, if you're trying to give a liberal arts education to, let's say, recent immigrants to the country, and you're trying to, to fund this, and you're wasting money on these people who don't deserve it, you could say that until you realize that now um, your, your neighbors are not giving, getting access to this free education that makes people happy and free, and so there's less happy, happiness and freedom. That's dangerous for us. And I could see another side that says, don't don't be, you know, bringing your liberal arts propaganda to uh, people of other cultures. Right. Like um, if we think it's good, I think the access to it is, is good. But then there's this other thing that I, I think is also um, commendable. And that is that you who have had this opportunity are are called to spread this love everywhere you go, that that these should not be translated to the world as esoteric and inaccessible, but rather you can go to a pub or you can be hanging out with your friends as you're, as you're playing tennis or whatever, and you can explore these same ideas. Um, there's a tradition in Cuba, <clears throat> went, went down to Cuba a couple of years ago and was meeting with some folks that, that were really interested in this idea of the elector um, program where you would be, <clears throat> this is not in Fidel's Cuba. I'm saying that prior to, the, prior to all that, the idea would be if you're sitting there rolling cigars, all day, somebody would be a reader. Somebody would be there giving you the great literature and poetry uh, that you couldn't have gotten in college. So, so it is, it is even, man, I, I met with a Republican Congresswoman the other day. She would say, you know, the one, the one dirty secret I have is I really love public education or public, uh, public television because it's wholesome. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm right there with you. That's what that was about. And I know it's like, you know, this old liberal idea, but I, I think it's a <clears throat> I think it's one that we should we should keep up with. And we in the Lutheran world, we got Davy and Goliath. You say. I don't really like that one. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks for the question and and uh, the conversation that continues on. Um, uh, Mr. Smith uh, offers this that, that may be uh, an extension of, of your response, Jeff, and is this question. What is our ultimate commitment 
to the liberal arts? Are the liberal arts a means or an ends? Are the liberal arts a stepping stone to living the good life or is pursuing the liberal arts the definition of living the good life? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. We say this is this is where we, you know, if I if, if I have a college for four years, you're going to learn how to surf, then I want you to be surfing. The, the game is the surfing. The game isn't the class on surfing. Um, this is like, oh gosh, you got the second order discourse about music, but what I really want to do is go to a concert, right? I mean, I want to be there. And so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, the cat, you know, lifelong learners, but it's real. That's what it's about. It's a way of life. Right. All right. Uh, I have a question. Real quick. Okay. Um, sorry. Thank you, Dr. Allison, for everything you've been, uh, you've been saying. Um, and I just want to backtrack to uh, the, the answer that you had prior to um, the one that uh, CJ just asked. Um, what do you, so you touched on the fact that um, immigrant students and uh, people that are less fortunate to have a college education should still be allowed to have either the college experience or liberal arts, or liberal arts education, but um, sorry, I lost my voice um, a couple of days ago, so it's a little. You're doing crazy, great. But um, what do you think about the idea that a lot of universities, colleges, um, especially in the liberal arts, are trying to fill a quota with their immigrant population? Um, I know for a fact that um, I'm from Russia, and my parents automatically, whenever we moved to America, and I started thinking about college, they said you need to have a scholarship and whatever it is, academic, athletic, and you need to go into the STEM field. And by experience, I know a lot of um, Asian and uh, Mi Middle Eastern um, immigrants and parents think the same. So what do you think of uh, redirecting that into people desiring to have their children have a liberal, having a liberal arts education. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, you got two things going on there. I mean, one's like this idea of quotas. That's seems kind of patronizing. I know that like, I've, I've been a part of programs like in Seattle, there's this thing called uh, act six. It's primarily students of color that were brought in and they, uh, but that wasn't what, that wasn't the definition for who got to be a part of it, but they, they were always worried that they uh, would be seen as, uh, you know, not being on an equal footing. And so, I mean, that kind of language is problematic, except what the program did was it went out and sought those people who needed to be in college that were, that were, this was a good place for them. They were going to be able to get their leadership that wouldn't have had anybody bringing them to this conversation that said, you can do this, we can fund this, right? So there's a difference between being active in going out and, and bringing people in that, that enhance the environment and then just in a kind of cynical way doing something. But to the question of uh, especially, uh, I think, very highly motivated first-generation uh, students from other countries that feel the need to stay in STEM. STEM's great, right? There's nothing wrong with it. It's wonderful. Um, I'd like to make sure that the liberal arts is still part of that conversation, like that science is part of that especially, and mathematics is part of that. But what you're talking about is more of this idea that the only thing that education is going to do is get you into certain kinds of professions that are going to be highly lucrative. The way that this is another thing for the sake of these poor, uh, these students that I know, if we can work to 
find a way as a society to make it more affordable for everybody to have whatever type of education, fine art, whatever makes them find incredible joy, then we take that away. We then don't find ourselves like disqualifying people who would be the great poet of our generation because they're not learning their craft. They're not studying poetry because they've got to go do something else just because of these other pressures. Now, there's certainly going to be culture pressures that we can't do anything about, but we can certainly make it easier to justify getting a, uh, a seemingly frivolous degree in, in paleography. <laughs> there is nothing frivolous about paleography. Uh, paleography is great, please. Especially if we just, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I want to say the only thing about paleography, especially for you students. I mean, think about these things that um, you, you might say, I'm an academic, but I don't want to be a librarian and I'm an introvert. I don't want to be a professor. There are these other areas that are just delightful and they make the world beautiful. So the reason, the reason that state governments fund education is so that the civilization survives. It's in our best interest. I mean, we do it for K through 12, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just want to make certain that everybody sees that uh, on chat, I, I threw a, a couple of things up there, uh, including my email, my, my number, if you need to call me, text me, if there's any problems with uh, access one way or the other. And for my Concordia students, some uh, reminders about where to find the coffee if you happen to be on campus. All right. Uh, but I, I want to make certain that uh, Natalie, you had a, a question and I was never able to get the rest of that question. Ms. Alderson, welcome to our conference. Uh, would you like to uh, uh, articulate your question about life. Go ahead. Sure. I was kind of like still forming it a little bit, but um, I just, what you said about um, kind of turning away from the pursuit of truth when we have this commitment to an ideology, it reminded me of, we just read part of um, the summation of Catholic faith by Aquinas and how there's two types of truth, like one guided by reason and one that is beyond reason. And so I kind of am just wondering if you have any insights on balancing a pursuit of the truth, yet also leaning into our faith as not complacency, but more understanding. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, I mean, I, I, I couldn't, it couldn't fill, uh, I mean, I, I would fill up all the time with this. Uh, let me just pick one piece of that. It's a great, I mean, just the question itself, I think is, is helpful for us to just, just have that. But um when I was thinking about like trauma, because this is, I have like high anxiety, sometimes debilitating anxiety. And um, uh, I realized that one of the ways that I deal with this is I've, I'm kind of fighting against my body. And then my body is trying to shout at me uh, that there's a trauma <laughs> somewhere stuck in me, right? And um, so what, what we often do is we disconnect our noggins from our bodies, and yet, by the way, Natalie, have you ever seen the, the documentary? It's called um, uh, My Octopus Teacher. No, you got to see My Octopus Teacher. My Octopus Teacher is about a dude who free dives. And he wants to understand, he wants us to understand this like aquatic life. He's, you know, making a video of it. Until he took off the scuba gear, he couldn't know what was going on with the life of this. For, it's, I, I eat, it's pulpo. I mean, they eat this thing. I don't, I don't want to eat pulpo anymore. The, um, the, the octopus. He couldn't see it because whenever he would show up, he's bringing all this other contraption with him, right? So he, the first thing he does is he, to know, to know the science of it, he had to actually feel the cold water. He had to be 
in that space to really understand it. And secondly, what he finds is he, he develops a relationship with this octopus. And I swear you got to watch it. The octopus cuddles his chest. It, it like he gets to know him for it's like lifespan. It's like kind of hanging out and there's his little buddy and the little the little octopus mama reaches out her little tentacle and touches his finger. Where is the brain of that thing? Now, I'm not a marine biologist here, but it feels like what's interesting about the intelligence of the octopus is that its intelligence is, is, is in its entire body. And since Descartes, in some ways, we've kind of been okay with disconnecting our intuitions, um, our feelings from the process of understanding. Uh, and we have been overly uh, involved in this kind of hermetic seal off from the actual people that are the knowers and their backstory and why they're researching what they're researching. I mean, this is not, not new information to anybody who understands like the sociology of knowledge, but I, I just think that the, my basic answer to the question is um, a word that I'm nervous to use, but I, I think it's kind of a mysticism by which I don't mean uh, if you, if you read Evelyn Underhill on mysticism, she makes it very clear uh, the English um, Anglican mystic. She says, um, magic is what people, people usually think of mysticism as magic, where you're trying to control the spirits, you know, you're calling upon the angels and the demons or some spirit to do your work. That's not what mysticism is. Mysticism is awareness. And so prayer, if, if you'd like, if, you, if you're not going to do Zazen because it's foreign, it sounds like it's a, like a Buddhist thing, is something that you need to have in your life you need to have stillness and quiet and you need to get reattached to the fact that you're feeling an actual heartbeat. Because so often <clears throat> we disconnect from that <clears throat> for, um, for reasonable, uh, it's a reasonable cope, coping mechanism, but it's not very helpful for knowledge. We've got a, a, a question here uh, from uh, Tiffany Hall, who says, my question is in light of an article I read regarding the education of younger students highlighting their misinterpretation of opinion <clears throat> and fact and their disregard for moral truth. How do we reach those younger students so that when we enter the collegiate space, we are prepared to hold truth tenderly, as Dr. Mallinson puts it? Now, these, this is just like one of those questions, like a rhetorical question, like why, Lord? Uh, because I, I think, you know, I remember, I don't know if you, if you ever had this, I, I, I was in both uh, parochial and public schools. And I remember at one point there was this, they were really good at this. They realized this was a problem and you had little bubble sheet Feeling is this an opinion or a fact, you know, and, and that's good. I think this is where, I think this is where the actually English teachers come in handy in, in school, because I've come to, to find that in many ways, um, narrative, uh, because it does not uh, require legitimization, legitimization um, but presents certain virtues very clearly, you know who the good guy and the bad guy are, good gal and good bad gal. Um, you don't have to be taught that, that Theseus is a good kid. What you have to be taught is to be brave like Theseus, you see. And so, so the, the moral formation isn't even like a class in business ethics because everybody knows like, business ethics for a lot of people just becomes, all right, what am I not supposed to admit that I do, but not really a transformation of who I am. And when you have... That, that, that narrative, that literary approach to things, you humanize other people, you start to see, I would say mystically, our interconnection with everybody. And that interconnection immediately makes you a more ethical person. By which I mean, very often, 
you know, it's ethics is not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of repentance and perspective. If I know that you are suffering, it is harder for me to do those things that cause you to suffer. If I know that the people of this other country are suffering and they are people and I've read their stories, then I cannot treat them. I, it, it is distasteful to me. It actually, there's like built into me a resistance to harming them. But when I do not see their humanness, I, I can't do it. And therefore, this is why I was saying with, with uh, Emmanuel Levinas that ethics is the first philosophy. It doesn't matter if I know the difference between a fact and an opinion if I don't care about what that's going to mean for my neighbor. So I have to start with the ethics of, of the neighbor. And then I'm going to do everything I can just to understand, just to be aware. How do you experience the world? And uh, that's the beginning of, I, I think, the healing. so much friends for joining us for this episode of the protect your noggin podcast you want to join in on the conversation we'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show you can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button and don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending you can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message please also follow us on twitter at the pynp and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.